Hello, and welcome to HealthEd's Clinical Takeaway Podcast, where we interview leading experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. You can claim RACGP CPD points for these podcasts using the self-claim pathway. Just log into your RACGP account, go to your personal dashboard, and click on the self-claim button. If you're not a GP, you may still be able to claim this podcast for your CPD. Please refer to your relevant accreditation body. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other free educational resources for health professionals as well. Go to healthed.com.au. You can also register for free HealthEd webcasts where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you can have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. There's nothing like learning about Q fever from a rural GP. Dr. Rosie Garrity cuts to the chase and imparts words of practical wisdom as only experience can give. She encourages rural GPs to set up Q fever vaccination clinics and urban GPs to always have Q fever in our list of differential diagnoses for anyone presenting with abrupt onset fever with systemic symptoms. Dr. Garrity, tell us about yourself. I'm a GP, I'm a rural GP, and I've spent the last 31 years working in a rural community of Roma in Western Queensland. Rosie, we're going to speak about Q fever today. How did you become interested in Q fever diagnosis, treatment and prevention at your clinic? Well, one of the very first cases I saw as a very junior doctor in Roma was a young man who had Q fever and he was very, very unwell. We didn't know it was Q fever at the time. He was so unwell, I thought he had meningitis. And a very experienced doctor, rural doctor beside me said, you need to think about Q fever whenever you see this kind of presentation in our community. And it turned out that he did have Q fever. And from there, um, I was always looking for it. Now, do you see many cases in your area of Roma? We do. We see a lot of cases. We've we're got a fairly high incidence of Q fever in this district. Um, I think the further west in Queensland is probably the highest in Queensland, but certainly the district of Roma. There are a lot of people, and we've seen a lot of cases of Q fever, but there's also a lot of people who have had Q fever and never known it. Now, how do you assess for Q fever in Roma? What occupations or flags do you look for, considering the fact that 50% of the positive cases really have no contact with farm animals? So first of all, it's the history that the patient gives you. So a very abrupt onset of fever associated with headache, um, sweats, chills and rigors, extreme fatigue, nausea and anorexia, and weight loss. So a combination of those symptoms, I'm automatically thinking, could this be Q fever? Then you look at the occupation of of the person involved. Are they a grazier? Um, Do they work with stock in some form? Are they an abattoir worker? Have they visited an abattoir, et cetera? Are they a vet? Do they work for the Department of Parks and Wildlife, for instance? Mm -hmm. Um, Are they living and working in a rural area? 
Are they immunosuppressed? Mm -hmm. Are they a child? So all of these groups can get Q fever and anybody who actually lives in the rural community can get Q fever, even if they don't have direct contact with animals. Now, when you see a patient with such symptoms, what do you do in terms of examination and investigations? So you do your general examination, especially their temperature, um, their vital signs. You have a feel of their tummy looking for liver tenderness. You have a good listen to their chest. Often they have a cough and often they look really sick. Sometimes they have signs of meningism. Um, so they can look really very, very ill. Mm. Um, so and then if you're thinking about that, you automatically order the appropriate tests for blood count, kidney liver function tests, Q fever PCR, which we're very lucky to have now, and Q fever serology. So you do all of that when you see a patient such as this. Tell me, Rosie, how hard is it for a GP to really understand Q fever serology results? I think it's quite difficult, actually. And I think, you know, I've been a GP for long enough to know that that was the only way we could diagnose Q fever. So it was often in retrospect that we diagnosed the Q fever. We treated on spec, but now we're very lucky to have the PCR test, which has made things a little bit easier. How do you get a specimen for the PCR, Rosie? Uh, just a blood specimen, and it has to be sent away, uh, and it can take several days to come back. All right, so you're still waiting for a result. The patient in front of you obviously looks a little bit crook. What, what are you going to do now? Uh, we start doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day, and we monitor that patient very closely. Sometimes if they're very ill, we actually admit them to hospital. What sort of things would trigger you? Would it be dehydration or what, what sort of things would say, no, nah, you don't belong at home, you belong in hospital? Absolutely. Uh, meningism for a start and certainly if the patient's not keeping down any fluids. And I've seen some very ill children that need to be uh, admitted as well. What if I'm allergic to doxycycline? I would consult my infectious disease colleagues and often they will use Bactrim, I think, as a second line. But, yes, I would certainly be in touch with my infectious disease colleagues. Sounds like a very wise thing to do. Now, do you take any special care about close contacts? We do talk about the family, but sometimes it's not directly related to the close contacts. However, if the wife has been washing the husband's shirts in the washing machine and may have had some aerosol exposure, or if the whole family's been working in the cattle yards, we've had a family that was two children and a wife all infected with Q fever one after the other. That's when we take special interest in the contacts. Now, how can other local remote GP clinics implement education around Q fever in their region? I think there's a couple of very good online modules that people can look at, and especially if you're a remote GP, online is often very good. I know the Australian College of Rural and Remote Medicine has a very good online mod education module, as does the Q fever register. Now, can you describe the vaccination process, including the necessity for pre-vaccination screening, and yes. what challenges might present itself for rural and remote patients? So the pre-vaccination clinic has got three components to it. First of all, you need to take a very good history from the patient to ensure that they've never been exposed to Q fever 
in the past and that they've never been sensitised to Q fever. We also need to do a skin test, uh, which is an intradermal injection. And we also need a serological test, uh, which tests for the IgG antibody to Clostridium burnetti. So there's three components to that. And then they, the patient needs to be aware that they need to come back in a week's time to have that skin test read. So when the patients are booked into a Q fever vaccination clinic, they're told that at the very start from the receptionist, that they must be able to come back in seven days to have that test read and the explanation as to why they need to come back in seven days. If the patient is unable to come in seven days, then we wait and book them at another clinic. What are you looking for with the skin test, Rosie? So the skin test, we're looking for the presence of acquired cellular mediated immunity. Um, so it's a little bit of diluted QVAX that we pop into the dermis. It's got to be an intradermal vaccination. And it is the most sensitive test out of all of these three parts to the pre-vaccination clinic for seeing if someone's ever been exposed to Q fever or had the injection. Would it be a problem if the patient does not really know if he or she had been previously exposed? Theoretically, no. You know, they can have be a little bit sensitized but that's why we do the, this vaccination because a lot of patients are unaware that they've been either vaccinated or that they've had the infection and you know they'll get a very impressive skin reaction if they have actually had the disease before and any induration at the side of that injection is indicative that they've had a past infection even if their antibodies are negative in their blood and what does that mean if you see if you see a patient who has been previously exposed what does it mean for vaccinations do they it's contraindicated yeah they cannot have the vaccination because it can make them very very sick they can get a hypersensitivity reaction which can make them very ill so that's why it's very important to understand why the pre-vaccination clinic is very important with this particular vaccine and you said it's any signs of induration. It doesn't matter the size or redness. It's just any reaction at all, right? Any. You have to feel it. And if you can feel a thickness and see a redness, then that is a positive test. Now, you said that if a patient cannot return on day seven, uh, you would ask them to go elsewhere. What do we mean by elsewhere? Is it closest to home or where they might be in seven days? How would you counsel that patient? No, I think um, we would ask them, to attend at the next clinic that perhaps we're running if we are the closest clinic. If we're not the closest clinic, then we can direct them to other people who may vaccinate. But I know in Western Queensland, I think I'm one of the only people that will actually do the vaccination clinics here. And people travel up to three hours to get this vaccination sometimes. Okay. So to become a practice that vaccinates, uh, you have to go through various degrees of accreditation and training. Is that right? You do. It's not directly implicated that you must do that training, but it's very advisable to do that training. And, uh, and that is available through the QFever register. Now, what involvement do nurses in your clinic have? And does this involvement differ from region to region and state to state? Yes, it definitely does differ. So within my clinic, my nurses assist me with drawing up the um, skin tests. So diluting the, the QVAX and 
uh, drawing up the 0.1 mil that we use for the skin testing. And that's about all they do with the pre-vaccination clinic. With the vaccination clinic itself, I read the test and then they will often administer the vaccine, which is administered subcutaneously. So it's very important that they understand that it's a subcutaneous injection and not an intramuscular injection. But it does vary from clinic to clinic. And I do know that in some areas, the nurses are purely responsible for running the vaccination clinics. Are there restrictions uh, for nurses when it comes to the vaccination process itself? You said that they can do, they actually run the whole clinic. So no restrictions at all. I'm unaware of any restrictions. In your experience, what is the best way to set up a vaccination clinic for Q fever in a rural setting and describe how you would differentiate the roles? And what do you think is the ideal setting for this clinic uh, in a GP practice or a hospital clinic? Look, I think it can be run in either the GP um, practice or the hospital clinic, especially some rural hospitals are the GP clinic. But you need to have the whole team involved in the whole process, including the receptionist to understand the need for the patient to come back at day seven uh, to get the details of the patient. You need to make sure that pathology is available to collect the blood or have a nurse available to collect the blood. Mm -hmm. And then you need to have the doctor aware of how to administer that Q fever skin test. So that all is very important. The receptionists also are aware of all the um, consent forms that we use off the Q fever register. So we get the patients to complete those forms um, so that we've got a very good understanding of what their exposures have been like in the past before we actually see them. How would you reach out to the patients uh, for their seven-day review? Would it be um, emails, SMS, text messages? No, we just tell them that they must return on day seven and we give them that appointment that day. Um, So they're all very aware that they need to come back on day seven. And how do you create awareness of your Q fever vaccination clinic in your region And do you take advantage of, say, regional fairs or shows uh, to generate local awareness? Yeah, we don't take advantage of the shows, but I know in some rural communities that they do. And I think that's a very good time to do that because you're capturing an audience um, to make them aware of, of Q fever. In our community, we advertise on our Facebook page that we're running a Q fever clinic. And we have organisations that use our clinic uh, on a regular basis for their workers, such as feedlots, the grazing families that employ people who understand the importance of Q fever. And we've had a few families in the district that have had very sick children as a result of Q fever that have advertised very widely uh, in the media about Q fever and the importance of early diagnosis and treatment and prevention. Dr. Garrity, are there such things as seasonal periods where you have to be more aware, for example, the mastering season or wet season or half a season? It's probably more the dry season where we have a lot of dust in the air. Um, and, you know, because the inhalation is, a, is the major source out here of infection. So certainly mustering when they're in the cattle yards. And when it's very dusty, there are times when we need to be very vigilant about Q fever. 
Now, in the uh, COVID and post-COVID times now, uh, Rosie, do you think wearing of masks may or may not be helpful? I don't think we'd get farmers to wear masks in, <laughs> <laughs> in the cattle yards, and that's really where it's going to help. <laughs> See, I'm clearly speaking like an urban GP, aren't I? Now, you've been really practical and very helpful so far, and I'm just wondering whether or not there are some important points I might have missed. I don't think so. I think that awareness is really important. People need to think about Q fever whenever they see an abrupt onset of a fever. Interestingly, you mentioned COVID times and the last diagnosis I had was of a, of a young boy who would shoot ruse on a weekend as part of his enjoyment. And he presented with sudden onset of fever, went to the hospital, was COVID tested um, until his mum called and said, he's really not getting any better. And I said, did they check him for Q fever? And of course, that's what he had. So, you know, a lot of the illnesses do overlap and you've just got to keep thinking broadly in these COVID times as well that these diseases still happen. Love your high index of suspicion. Now, do you have any final words to fellow rural and regional GPs and also to urban GPs about Q fever? To my rural colleagues, I would say it's very important that you learn the process of running a vaccination clinic uh, because this is how we're going to prevent people getting Q fever in our area. To my urban colleagues, I would say you need to think about this. You need to think about it when you see anybody with a fever. I've had two of my patients who have been transferred to big city hospitals where it hasn't been thought about and I've had to actually give them a gentle nudge to say, could this be Q fever? And in both cases, it turned out to be. So for once in our life, we can teach our city colleagues a thing or two. Um, not for once. I think there's a lot of things our regional and rural colleagues do that I take my head off to. Rosie, I really do thank you for this time. It's been really excellent talking to you. No worries. Thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.